1: Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme Is India's economy on the right track?
2: Like the economy, you know, the trains work, ultimately. They're not great, but the trains do work. You know, that's why I compared the Indian economy to to the trains. You know, it's kind of underwhelming in a way, but it it gets you to where you need to go.
1: And how is the mobile phone industry
2: boosting Vietnam's economy?
3: The provinces that Samsung has invested in have gone from being sort of a couple of the poorer ones to some of the wealthiest in Vietnam, and the spillover effects are really sort of helping to catalyse growth in Vietnam's regions.
1: First, stock markets around the world are having a wobble. Shares in tech firms fell, and the markets threw what some are calling a tariff tantrum after Donald Trump sparked fears of a trade war. Is market volatility the new normal? Henry Kerr, our global economics editor, is in the studio. Henry, what's happening?
4: Well, it's a continuation of recent trends on the one hand, in that there's been worries now over the last couple of months about reduction in central bank stimulus, about inflation scare. It's now been compounded by the uh, worries about trade, China announced retaliation against steel and aluminium tariffs this week. It was widely expected, but it kind of was symbolically important nonetheless, because investors are worried about a trade dispute. And then people are worried about tech and the possibility of a regulatory backlash against the likes of Facebook and Amazon, compounded by President Donald Trump tweeting about all this stuff, is making people a bit worried.
1: So generally, did you think that investors are kind of overshot in their enthusiasm and are now starting to see what might have been things that were there already, and then it kind of goes into a feedback loop or what?
4: Well, if you cast your mind all the way back to the election of President Donald Trump, markets initially kind of turned down. And then they rebounded strongly. And there was this debate for a while, you know, are we going to have good Trump or are we going to have bad Trump? And good Trump was seen as deregulation, tax cuts, and so on. And I'd say the story for 2017 was one of great optimism. It was one of moderates restraining Donald Trump in the White House of tax cuts happening and of deregulation happening. And investors were very happy and the sense of optimism carried through to the new year. Then what you've had this year is you've had the emergence of the bad Trump side. You've had the emergence perhaps of the first shots being fired in a trade war. You've had the likes of Gary Cohn being kicked out of the White House. And that just has everyone more nervous. You add in the problems that Facebook has had and the fact that tech stocks have driven uh, much of the boom for the last few years. And you can see how that all comes together with a lot of worry. I would still say the most important factor is the inflation factor is the bond yield factor for where markets are going to go this year. It's the most uncertain one, but there is certainly a lot of tail risk from trade and from uh, tech.
1: Uh, So wider market sentiment is going to be tested at the end of the week by the release of US jobs data. And that'll give investors presumably a clue for where to look for interest rates. And what are you expecting? Do you have any feel for what those figures will be?
4: Sure. It's it's a bit of a fool's game to try and predict the, uh, the jobs number exactly because these sorts of things are pretty volatile month to month. And in fact, investors probably learned their lesson. When the first uh, market tantrum happened in February, that people might remember was set off by a high wage growth number in the jobs report is 2.9%. And people thought, is this a sign of inflation? Are interest rates going to be much higher than we thought? Does that mean stock valuations need to be lower? But then of course, the next month, the wage number came back down, that series is very volatile. I'd still say that that wage growth number is the most important number in that jobs report. And if you've got some sudden large breakout in wage growth, that really would worry markets. Because if interest rates are going to have to go higher faster than people previously thought, then that means that assets should be cheaper and stock prices should come down naturally as a kind of just mathematical result of higher interest rates. So it's worth paying attention to, but also worth remembering that that data is pretty noisy.
1: So it sounds like the story for 2018 is going to be volatility as a new normal then?
4: Well, certainly all the factors that had led to that long period of stable growth are starting to recede. So we we can expect more volatility going forward, yes. Thanks, Henry. Thank you.
1: Next, we turn to India, where the long-term growth rate is about 7% a year. That means that over the last 20 years, its economy has doubled in size twice. After a blip last year, can it pick up speed again this year? Stan Piniel, our South Asia business and finance correspondent, is based in
2: Mumbai. Hi, Helen.
1: Stan, what happened last year?
2: So two things happened uh, last year. The first one actually happened in late 2016, and that was demonetization, uh, which was this kind of odd economic experiment that India did, where overnight it cancelled 86% of all banknotes in uh, an economy which, which still runs essentially on cash and it took several months for the economy to get back to normal. It was probably already slowing down a bit before that and it took many months for the economy to come back and just when it was getting back to normal uh, there was a new tax the goods and services tax which really kind of revolutionized the indirect taxation in India and it replaced uh, hundreds of of local taxes in different states and and nationwide taxes into a single value-added tax so it's, it's taken a long time for businesses to adapt. That seems to have happened now and for the first time in in the last quarter, so in the in the the three months to December, uh, the economy went above its long term seven percent growth uh, line to seven point two percent. So nothing to get super excited about, but there, there is a sense that the economy, as you said, is, is back on track.
1: What would it take for India then to, for example, make it eight or nine percent growth, sort of rivaling what China has managed to do in the last few decades?
2: Yeah, and, and by the way, we should be a little bit careful when we compare India and China because the Indian population is still growing by about 1% a year. So the 8%, 9% that, that China has done would equate to, say, 10% in, in India. Certainly that's the aspiration of, of India is to, is to get to that 8 to 10% level. That's the, the the level at which economists say that real jobs are created. And that, that's the one weakness of the, of the Indian economy is that even at 7% growth, there is a sense, uh, which is not necessarily backed up By data, but there is a sense that not enough jobs are being created. Now, if you speak to fans of Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister, they say that he has undertaken dramatic structural reforms of the economy, such as the goods and services tax, such as demonetization, and various other things uh, that will propel India to uh, double digit growth soon enough. I think that's probably over-egging it somewhat. There are a lot of things that the government hasn't done, could, could have done, but hasn't done. For example, reforming labor laws, uh, reforming land laws. It, it's very difficult for businesses to get land to build factories and so on. And, and generally liberalizing the economy. There's been a lot of reform, but there hasn't been a, a lot of liberalization. And uh, that's kind of obviously what, what helped China to, to achieve uh, their levels of growth. And India's not quite there yet.
1: So you've recently written for us in the finance section about India's economy and you compared it to the Indian train system in that if you look at it from one angle, it's quite impressive. And if you look at it from another, not so much. What's your maddest train experience from India?
2: Oh, you know, where to begin The lifeblood of Mumbai, where I live, is the suburban trains, which pack in something like 4 million people a day. And when I say pack in, I I genuinely mean uh, pack in. You really need to know where you want to get off, because if you are not in the right part of the train uh, at your stop, then you are are heading to the distant suburbs uh, before you even have a chance uh, of going anywhere near it. But like the economy, you know, the trains work ultimately. They're not great, but the trains do work. And, I, I you know, that's why I compared the Indian economy to, to the trains. You know, it's kind of underwhelming in a way, but it, it gets you to where you need to go. 7% economic growth is nothing to scoff at. I mean, if China didn't deliver that kind of, you know, 20 year historic uh, spurt of growth uh, for over a billion people, India would actually be considered quite impressive over the long term. That, that's not a particular endorsement of Mr. Modi's policies or the Congress Party's policies before. I mean, it, it, this is a 20 year growth trend we're, we're talking about. But China did exist. So, you know, India is four times richer uh, now than it was 20 years ago, but China is six times richer. That's a comparison which is quite difficult for, for India to live down. Thanks, Dan. Thank you.
1: If you've got any thoughts on the current stock market turbulence or where you think India's economy is heading, please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at Finally, since the launch of the iPhone, China has dominated the production of smartphones. But China's neighbours are now starting to muscle in. Vietnam is home to the world's biggest mobile phone factory. The Economist's Alice Fullwood is here to tell us more. Alice, what's behind Vietnam's ascension to smartphone power?
3: Samsung is driving a lot of the production of smartphones in Vietnam. The statistics authorities in Vietnam estimate that 98% of smartphones produced there are Samsung products. And this trend really started happening when Vietnam ascended to the World Trade Organization in 2007. That was when Samsung made their first investment in Vietnam in a small factory, but they've since invested almost $20 billion. And now they produce most of their mobile phones in Vietnam.
1: So give us a sense of the scale and the importance of Samsung then for Vietnam's economy.
3: Right, $20 billion is a lot of money for any economy, especially Vietnam, which is relatively small. Samsung is now uh, very important as a share of Vietnam's economy. In 2017, 25% of Vietnam's exports were Samsung products. Uh, This is mostly smartphones, but also things like televisions and washing machines. So they now are producing sort of a lot of their goods in in Vietnam. And that has sort of really helped catalyse the local economy. Uh, The provinces that Samsung has invested in have gone from being sort of a couple of the poorer ones to some of the wealthiest in Vietnam. And the spillover effects are really sort of helping to catalyse growth in Vietnam's regions.
1: Is it a bit risky to have so much of your economy dependent on one company? I mean, I think of Nokia and Finland, but of course, Nokia is a Finnish company. But still, Nokia rose and fell and Finland's economy kind of showed that effect.
3: It has been quite risky. um, And Vietnam's economy has reflected that. In early 2017, when you had the Samsung Note 7 scandal, which was when Samsung smartphones started sort of blowing up, they had to do a global recall of those products. Vietnam's economy actually grew incredibly slowly, sort of less than 5% in Q1, um, but accelerated sort of 7.5% by the end of the year as Samsung revamped production. Uh, So the company is having a pretty profound impact on the sort of fluctuations in the Vietnamese economy. But for the most part, it's helping to catalyse growth faster than it would have been otherwise. So it's still been a good idea for Vietnam to attract that investment from Samsung.
1: I presume it's hoping to attract other companies to cluster around it or to move out of that one particular niche.
3: Vietnam has been an extremely attractive destination for foreign direct investment over the past 10 years, particularly from Korean companies. LG is also there in in relatively large presence. Um, A lot of those companies sort of make things there. Apparently, sort of Up to 100,000 Koreans now live in Ho Chi Minh City in southern Vietnam. When you walk down the streets there, uh, all of the shops sell sort of Korean uh, skincare products to cater to those clientele. So the the relationship between those two countries has become very uh, sort of ingrained. It's not just Samsung. Half of Vietnam's foreign direct investment over the past 10 years has been Korean companies. And it's not exclusively just smartphones either. It's a lot of sort of processing technology and sort of things like uh, chips and things as well.
1: Is this one of many links that Asian countries are making between them and their supply chains, maybe bypassing China a bit?
3: Yes, yeah, so it definitely seems as though the sort of Samsung investment and Korean investment in Vietnam is a sort of hedge against sort of China's dominance in the region. Uh, for the first time in 2017, Samsung actually produced more revenue from its manufacturing subsidiaries in Vietnam than in China. And this sort of feeds into the sort of broader trend of Korea trying to diversify its geopolitical risks. So when President Moon was visiting Vietnam uh, last week, he sort of highlighted that he was trying to improve relations between Korea and Southeast Asian economies as they sort of rise in importance. Korea is the fourth biggest economy in Asia, and it is a power in the region in its own right. And it now appears to be trying to exert that, particularly with US influence dwindling in the region. uh, China is acting with a bit more impunity. For example, they put a boycott on Korean goods last year after they did a joint military exercise with the US. So I think Korea is possibly encouraging these links uh, to sort of help hedge against Chinese hegemony. Thanks, Alice. Thank you.
1: That's all for this episode of Money Talks. For more, pick up an issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do,